We're looking at Genesis 22 this morning, probably one of the most famous aspects of Abraham's life. We want to talk today about sacrificial faith. Does faith include making sacrifices to God? In this, we note in your bulletin outline there that Abraham is being tested by God. Now, not tempted, not that word, but tested. What's the difference? Well, the Greek word tempted means to entice or solicit someone to do evil. It's actually made a noun in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, and in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan is called the tempter. The tempter. Tested, verse 1 of our text, we're in the Hebrew Bible now, we're in the book of Genesis, so it's Hebrew, and it means to try or to prove in the sense of evaluating. It is a term used in industry as an assay, assay, to determine if a metal has the particular characteristics needed for a particular proposed construction. In the Netflix series that Don and I are watching, The Men Who Built America, Carnegie was commissioned to build a bridge across the mighty Mississippi River at St. Louis, one of the large largest spans of the river. He's an iron man, and he knew that iron itself was too weak to span such a great distance. Now, he was aware of steel. We always think of Carnegie as the steel man. He was aware of steel, but it was only being used in that day for surgical instruments, for clock interiors, you know, the wind-up clocks, that kind of thing, small stuff, because it was so expensive to produce. So he set out to see if a bridge made of steel, not iron, could cross great spans without stress and failure. So he conducted assays, tests, being different, uh, using different formulas of metal to see which one, if any, could stand the stress of the span. So he would mix iron with this and iron with that, and he did these assays, they were called. Well, he produced a steel that had all the characteristics he needed, tensile strength and so on, but it was extremely expensive. So he started construction, but he had to stop construction because Really, he ran out of money. <laughs> so what did he do? He waited and he waited until there were a number of several wealthy investors who were willing to take the risk of building the steel bridge all the way across the river. So he got it done. He got the bridge built across the Mississippi at St. Louis. But when he got it built, he could not convince the public to use it. Why? Because they knew. <laughs> I don't know about iron out there all across the water. So what did he do? He hired an elephant and its trainers and hundreds and hundreds of people to follow the elephant and walk across the bridge to prove that it could hold the weight 
over that span. Wow, what a revolution. Thereafter, his steel girders became the infrastructure of the skyscrapers which, con uh, which contractors built first along the St. Louis skyline and later upon the New York City skyline. And as they say, the rest is history. It was his steel that enabled to do this kind of work. Well, how did he do it? He did tests to find out what combination is going to give him the strength to span these great uh, divides. In temptations, the intent is to cause a person to fall or fail morally, to sin against God and his law. That's a temptation. In testing, which is used in our text here, the intent is to prove the worth of a person to be able to accomplish whatever is put before him or before her. So think of it this way. Temptation, that's a different word. Temptation is to do evil. Testing, it's good. It's to show that somebody really has the fortitude and whatever to accomplish what they want. Now what was the test that God initiated towards Abraham? Verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. You will notice in this text that this is not a request of God. It is a command. And it is in the command that the nature of the test is revealed. The nature of the test is this. Will Abraham obey such an outrageous command from God or will he refuse? There's the test. Do the servants of God get to choose what commands of God they will or will not obey? Sometimes we live like that, don't we? We live as though... Mm, this is optional. I can or don't have to. This was a command. We could ask it this way. Is conscience a safe guide for conduct or does God know best? These are not easy questions to answer. And guess what? God does not make it easy for Abraham to comply. Read the text again. Notice God's description of the sacrifice. Take your son, your only son. Oh, no, I have two sons. Your only son, Isaac, mm, the son of promise, not Ishmael, whom you love, to the region of Moriah. And sacrifice him there on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Is God making this easy? Nah, he's laying it on him. <laughs> your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Box him in, box him in, box him in, box him in. No way out, no way out, no way out. No substitution. No, but I think, well, you know... 
It's my opinion. No. Boxy man, boxy man, boxy man. This boy, this place, this is what is to be done. Go to a mountain that I will tell you about. Does that sound familiar? When God called Abraham to leave his family in Ur, God said, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. God was saying, start out, and I will tell you when and where to stop. Hebrews 11, verse 8, words it this way, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, verse 8. Now we are towards the ending of Abraham's journey. He is over 100 years old. Verse 1 says sometime later. He and Sarah had waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac, the promised son. And now that Isaac is a boy, he's old enough to carry firewood. Verse 6, he's old enough to accompany his father up a mountainside. The command of God comes to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Can this really be happening? Would God give such a horrendous directive? Uh, maybe, maybe Abraham has misunderstood the word of God. Maybe, maybe this is all just a, a, a bad dream. No, no, not a, no, not a dream. A nightmare. Where's the righteousness of God in all of this? Would not God in later history condemn the Israelites for practicing this very thing? Let me read it for you. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. For you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18 verse 21. You say, well, okay, that was, that was to Molech uh, idolatry. So that's, but this is a sacrifice made to God. Well, then read Jeremiah's history, and it includes this gruesome account. Jeremiah writes, They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I never commanded it, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing, and so make Judah sin. Jeremiah 32, verse 35. Now you see <coughs> what is being asked here of Abraham, told of Abraham. It seems so out of character with God. Yes, to sacrifice one's child is a detestable thing, as God commands Abraham here to do. But you see, this is a test. This is a test. And the end outcome cannot be revealed before working through the problem, else the test loses its impact. You know, it's like people who read the end of a history or the end of a novel first, before they read the novel. Why? Because the suspense is too, it's too overpowering for them to work their way through all the chapters. They have to know how the story ends to make a judgment on whether or not to do the read. But you know, life isn't like that, is it? Life 
doesn't unfold like that. Instead, life comes a step at a time, a day at a time, and there's no crystal ball to reveal the future details of our personal lives. We have to work through the daily struggles, the daily reversals to discover the metal of our faith. That's how we discover it. And so Abraham is under a severe, not temptation, a severe test by God. Secondly, observe Abraham's quick compliance to what must have seemed an outrageous command. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Sometimes it's good just to stop and read the phrases. Let them sink in. Early the next morning, he got up, saddled his donkey. What does that mean? That means there's no hesitation. There is no delay. He got up, he saddled his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. What's, oh, wait a minute here. What, what has happened? Well, overnight, overnight, God has disclosed to Abraham the destination. Go to the mountain that I'll show you. Now, next morning, it's go to the place that I showed you. And we read on, on the third day Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Maybe he pointed. We will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, but he himself carried the fire and the knife. Knife? Why does he need a knife? To slay Isaac. Fire? What's he need fire for? To comply with the burnt offering. As Isaac and his father traveled on alone, Isaac's curiosity was piqued. He knew they had fire. He knew they had wood. But where was the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's response is given in verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. You see, Isaac's pretty sharp here. He has put two and two together. Abraham had told his servants, verse 5, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Isaac wants to know, okay, let's see, if we're going to worship God... Where's the offering? Where's the offering? Giving an offering is part of worship of God. It's not that God needs anything you or I have of material wealth. But you and I need to have checks and balances on such sins as greed and covetousness and envy and hoarding and selfishness taking God for granted, being users of God, being unthankful, and so on and so on. There are a lot of sins tied to your pocketbook. So in worshiping God, 
we are to bring offerings. Here's what God says. And this is from Psalm 50. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of a goat from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountain and the creatures of the field, they are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And then God says this, do, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the implied answer is, well, no, of course not. So what's your point, God? He goes on. Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. That's my point. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you will honor me. Ah, there's the definition of offerings to God. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Acknowledging that yes, we have this and this and this and this. But why? It's because of God's blessing in our lives. Paul put it this way in the New Testament. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So giving to God and his work is just what Isaac surmised. Father, we have wood. We have fire. But we are missing the essential ingredient. We have nothing for the burnt offering. We don't have that. Fire, yes. Wood, yes. But where's the offering in that? <laughs> Think about that. Where, where's the sacrifice in that? Uh, where's the value in that? Jesus addressed the sacrifice factor commending the widow woman who deposited two small copper coins into the temple treasury. And he made this comparison to his disciples. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Luke 21, verse 4. What's he telling his disciples? Her offering was sacrificial. She didn't have two copper pennies to spare. In fact, after this occasion, she didn't have two copper pennies to her name because she gave it all. So sacrifice is to be part of the offering. David, in his giving, addressed the value part of offerings to God. When Arunah, 
the Jebusite offered to give King David the threshing floor which the prophet Gad had commissioned him to use in worshiping God. We read, Aranas said to David, Oh, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings. Here's the threshing floor sledges and ox yokes for the wood. 2 Samuel 24, verse 22. Okay, you just, just take it. What was David's response? But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and he bought the oxen, paid 50 shekels of silver for them. 2 Samuel 24, 24. So there's a quick compliance to the command of God to go and make this sacrifice. And you see Abraham preparing the donkey, preparing the wood, and enlightening his servants what he is doing. Now thirdly, I want you to observe God's stay of his command to sacrifice Isaac. When Abraham and Isaac reached the very place God had pointed out to Abraham for him to worship, verse 9, Abraham built an altar, probably using field stones. He layered it with the the wood that he had bound on, on Isaac to come up the hill. Then he tied it. Isaac's hands and he put him on the wood verse 10 and following says then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven Abraham Abraham here I am he replied notice he does that does that when the first command was given in verse 1 Abraham is always saying here I am your servant At your call, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from him, from me, your son, your only son. We read this account and I I think there's hardly a more dramatic account in biblical history. Isaac, perhaps fearful of what was happening to him, but obedient nonetheless. Abraham following through with what God had told him to do and with full resolve to carry out the slaying of Isaac to be followed by lighting the fire. And we ask the question, what father does something like this to his own flesh and blood? This is the kind of stuff that horror movies are made of. But this is not Hollywood. This is not fiction. This is real. What was Abraham thinking? What was going through his mind? Fortunately, we don't have to speculate. The writer of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. Here it is. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and following. By faith, Abraham... When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
even though God had said to him, It's true, Isaac, that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Hebrews 11, verse 17. That's what he was thinking on Mount Moriah. And this indicates to me that when Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice Isaac, there was no hesitation. There's no halting in midair. There is no thinking, well, now, God, I got the knife drawn. It's, this is where you step in and stop me. None of that. He meant business with God. And in a split second, God called, Abraham, Abraham. And you can imagine how arresting that was. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Verse 12. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And the next verse says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram, a male sheep, caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place. This is a worship center. Now remember this. We've got an altar here. We've got wood on the altar. We've got a sacrificed lamb. He called the worship center Jehovah Jireh. The Lord sees to it. Not just the Lord sees. The Lord sees to it. Which NIV has translated, the Lord will provide. It's used in verse 8. Same phraseology. The Lord will provide the necessary animal for the offering, which is what Abraham told Isaac. The remaining context of this account tells us that God called from heaven a second time and reaffirmed his covenant to Abraham on oath. I swear by myself that because you have done this and have done not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, verse 18, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And verse 19 says, then Abraham returned to his servants and they set out together for Beersheba. What's Beersheba? It means the well of the oath. And it says Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Good place to stay under the oath, in the oath cradled in the oath of Almighty God, who swears his allegiance and blessing to those who obey him. Now, brethren, there is a gold mine of spiritual lessons here. There are so many I had to, I had to be selective. So these are just suggestions. Number one, the faith in God essential to answer his initial call is the same faith required to live the remainder of your life. When God first appeared to Abraham in the Chaldees, he said to him, leave your country, leave your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 1. That was a test of his faith. 
Who was this God that now spoke, and why should Abram follow him? Now more than 25 years later, God comes to Abraham again, and he says, Take your son and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there on a mountain that I will tell you about. Here's another test of faith. And it doesn't seem to be any more concrete than in the beginning years. One of the mountains I will tell you about? Really? Which one? Not your concern. For now, just head out and all will become clear when you put your feet to the path. You know, we think that after years of following the Lord, faith is replaced by knowledge. Replaced by knowledge. But knowledge, if we truly know God, bolsters faith. But there's something else about knowledge. And that is that knowledge can become a source of pride. And God hates pride. Paul writes it this way. We know that we all, we all possess knowledge. Granted, he's saying, granted, okay. We all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. So there's this characteristic, and it just goes on with all of life. The more knowledge we get about various things, the more prideful we are that we know how to do things. And the more prideful we are about how to do things, the more God is pushed to the background. And it's almost like we say, uh, just step aside there, God. I know how, I know how to do this. I can, I can handle this. And we do not see every situation as one requiring faith. So God's tests in life are not to see how much you know, but rather how willing you are to trust him and obey. We sang it today, didn't we? Trust and obey. There's no other way, but we try other ways. We think we get to the point where Knowledge can carry us through because we've been walking this path of faith for so long. Yeah, we know God. <laughs> we know what he's up to. We know what he's trying to do. We know what he's going to do almost before it comes. And we start relying on our knowledge. There's a tremendous lesson to learn here that Abraham in his old age, he still has to trust God by faith. You go out there to a mountain. Well, which mountain? I'm not telling you. I'll show you as you get walking. Well, that sounds a lot like when I was in Ur of the Chaldees. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> go to a land that I'll show you 
And I'm not telling you how to get there yet. You just got to trust me. The second lesson here is this, is this. What is right or moral to do is what God says in his word. And for us, the written word. We have many issues in life where men have made up their own rules of morality. Abortion, homosexuality, justifiable lying or deceiving. The psychiatrist on Fox News, Keith Abloh, was pontificating this week about how telling little white lies, is, that's okay. You have good intent. Your heart is right and so forth. So we, we go along with that. Justifiable theft. Well, you know, if you're starving, your kids are starving. That's justifiable. People of the world would be quick to take God to task here in our text because he commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In other texts, we actually have Israel being commanded to wipe out whole people groups because of their gross idolatry and rebellion against God. And those kind of texts are hard to swallow. And so we begin to question God. We cringe at the bloodshed. But let's keep in mind that God, while sometimes using direct intervention for judgment, as the case of Sodom, he sent fireballs from heaven on that occasion. But more often than not, he employs wicked men to bring about judgment. He even called Assyria, his servant, Egypt, his servant, what? To punish Israel for rebelling against his commandments and opting for pagan idolatry instead. And even with the most horrendous of crimes, the crucifixion of the innocent and sinless Son of God, Peter tells the assembled crowd at Pentecost, this man, referring to Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2, verse 23. In other words, he's saying, God removed his restraints so that the wicked could do what they are at heart. Now understand here that God doesn't make men evil. But he uses their avarice, their jealousy, their greed, and so on in such a way that the end product accomplishes his set purposes. That's real power. That's real power. When you can let men do their thing, do what they want to do in their hearts without coercion, without forcing them, and yet the outcome is exactly what you intended it to be. God has real control over the events of life. That said, God is the standard for morality. He is the standard for morality. Anything different, anything less is immoral. Abraham knew this about God, and so his faith taught him to believe. If God wants me to slay Isaac, then God will just have to raise him from the dead in order to keep his word to me, that through Isaac my descendants will come. He didn't overanalyze God. No, 
no, Lord, I can't do that. How would that be just? How would that be the right thing to do? I wonder, do we trust God like that? Do we trust that what God says in his word is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And that if we act on the truth, Jesus says the truth will set us free. Well, we have a whole list of other things that we think are, you know, maybe comparable to what we're reading in the scripture. And so we're in a quandary as to which way to fall. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I'm the life. That's it. All resides in me. A tremendous lesson to learn. That what is moral, what is right, is what God says to do. Now I know there's been some crackpots out there that say, you know, they say that God came to them in a dream and God said, told me to do this and, and what they did were horrendous things. But you'll notice here that, that God intervened with, with Isaac, the slaying of Isaac. And did not allow Abraham to follow through that which would be morally reprehensible. But some of these people that are criminals, they follow through. They're listening to voices of demons, not the voice of God. Third lesson here. Faith, while gifted to every believer, must grow. It must grow. It must not become stagnant. Abraham did not start out believing that God would have to raise Isaac to life. <laughs> no, no. If he, Abraham, sacrificed him on the altar in Mount Moriah. No, Abraham had to begin with what I'm calling baby steps of faith. He was an idolater like his father, Tiro. What did he know of a living God who could speak from heaven and give orders to obey? Yet by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11 verse 8. Why would he do that? He's trusting God's word. Go to a place, I will show you. Just get out there and get walking. And he did it. And so began Abraham and Sarah's spiritual journey within the kingdom of God. And he messed up big time by taking his nephew Lot on the journey when God told him to leave his family behind when setting out from her. And Lot was nothing but trouble for Abraham. Abraham failed in faith twice more, compromising the integrity of his wife Sarah by lying first to Pharaoh, then to Abimelech, saying that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. And why? It says because he was afraid of what might happen to himself. Well, that's not exactly faith. Why was he afraid? He was not fully persuaded of God's oversight and protection. Fear, fear was great, faith was weak. 
But he didn't stay a weakling in faith. That's my point. He used his servants to rescue Lot and the citizens of Sodom and refused compensation, saying to the king, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Wow, what a revelation he's come to about God. And he goes on. And I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread nor a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Genesis 14, 22 and 23. Wow, what a tremendous leap of faith here. <laughs> he recognizes what? God most high, creator of heaven and earth. That's the one I serve. When God promised him a land for his own, when he reached Canaan, we learn by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10. You, do you realize that he understood he understood that Canaan was not, was not the promised land. Sometimes we sell these Old Testament patriarchs short. We sell them short. Say, well, they just didn't know. You know, they had to have the New Testament to understand. No, he knew. <laughs> and that's the way, that's why he lived the way he did. I'm not building any permanent structure here. <laughs> we'll live in tents and we'll be nomadic. Why? Because this is not our home. We're just passing through. And when Abraham was too old to father a son, and Sarah was well past the age of childbearing, the Apostle Paul reminds us, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became the father of many nations. Just as it was said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead, dead, dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded, fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Romans 4, verse 18 through 21. I like the New Testament commentaries. If you've missed the New Testament commentaries, you won't get the theology of what's going on back in Genesis. But here it is, and Paul spells it out for us. What is he talking about? This is faith growing. That's what's going on. This is progress from baby steps to full adult trust in God. And we are called to do the same. And when we drag our feet through indolence, God rebukes us saying, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Why? Because you've lost them. That's why. You need milk, says Paul, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But... Solid food is for the mature who by constant use 
have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, verse 12 through 14. Abraham teaches us that stagnant faith is not faith. Just another way of saying what the whole book of James is writing about. Faith without godly works is dead faith. It's not faith. So you take Abraham where he started out as an idolater and you trace his life. You get him up to age 100 and you see the tremendous growth in spiritual strength and faith. That's what God wants for us. Don't want a baby Christian. It's good. We all start out as baby Christians. Nothing wrong with that if we're starting out. But after 20 years, 30 years being a Christian, still a baby, still an infant, still having to be taught the ABCs of the faith all over again, what have you been doing with your spiritual life? Number four. Learn that the impossibly hard things of life can be accomplished by partnering with God the Father. Abraham and Isaac were on a hard course. It consisted of a three-day journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah in the hill country of Judah. Fire, knife, wood... Isaac, unwittingly, as the sacrificial lamb. And we read, verse 6, that Abraham placed the wood on Isaac while he carried the knife in the fire. And it says, the two of them, the two of them went on together. Verse 7, Isaac questions Abraham as to where the lamb was that was needed for the sacrifice. And Abraham explained, God himself will provide the lamb. And we are told again, the two of them went on together. The two of them went on together. You say, well, what's your point? One day on Mount Moriah, easily recognized as the place designated by God, verse 4. Likely because of its unique rock formation known as the skull. God the Father's Son, Jesus, whom the baptizer labeled the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1 verse 29, ascended this same mountain, the scripture says, carrying his own cross. And he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, John 19 Verse 17. Only this time there was no stay of execution. But rather as Paul explains. God did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. Romans 8 verse 32. Or again you see at just the right time. When we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. You say, well, what's your point? My point is this. 
God the Father and God the Son walked this path together. The scripture says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Acts 4, verse 27, verse 28. Or if you want it from Jesus' prayer, he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Matthew 26, verse 42. To his disciples, Jesus explained, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. My Father. John 10, verse 17 and 18. Turning from a life of sin and self-interest to trusting faith in Jesus may seem, may seem the hardest thing ever for you to do, maybe even impossible. Jesus teaches us what is impossible with men is possible with God. Luke 18, verse 27. So my charge to you today is to launch out by faith. Take the Father's hand, believing that salvation can be yours through Jesus Christ on the promise of God. Paul writes, For we know, brothers, beloved of God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with, and with deep conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. Deep conviction? Is that you this morning? Deep conviction? That all is not well with your soul? That you're not right with God? That's God reaching out to you in love. And what you know about your heart, God knows about your heart ten times over. And yet God says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient. We leave that part out, but it's there in the text. If you are willing and obedient. Isaiah 1, verse 18 and 19. Are you willing and obedient to respond by faith to the call of God as Abraham was. You can overanalyze. You can analyze God to death. Only you won't get rid of God, you'll get rid of yourself. You can say, well, what about this? And what about that? And I don't know about this. And I don't know about that. You're trying to understand God rationally, intelligently, through knowledge. You want to put him in that little test tube. 
Test him this way, test him that way. Do an assay on God. See what salvation is all about, which works and what doesn't work. And God is saying to you in, in the scriptures many times over, it doesn't work that way. You step out by faith, and I'll show you where you're going, and I'll, I'll bring you to the right outcomes. May the Lord grant us faith today to believe. It's, it's the gift of God. Faith is his gift. But if you're being convicted today, if you're saying, I, I know I'm not right with God, well, that's God reaching out. Hear his voice. Respond. Lord, we ask that you will grant to us the faith to hear you really in our hearts. Arrogant men, sinful men like to analyze you to death. And if they can't figure you out, then their conclusion is you don't exist or you aren't the person that the Bible describes you to be. And all of the doubts begin and then Satan comes in and says, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, how can you know that? that, that that's not the truth. And yet we see in the life of Abraham and that he trusted you, he took you at his word, at your word rather, and he acted upon what you told him to do. We can tell from his life and from his whole decorum throughout his life that he was not a stupid person. He was a man of great intelligence, great business savvy. He knew what to do in terms of how to turn a buck and all of those things, but beyond all of that, he had a knowledge that was bathed in the Spirit of God. He had a knowledge that came as a result of faith. The more he trusted you, the more he knew. So in his old age, when we would say people, he should be in the grave, in his old age, Lord, when he went through the severest of all tests, he walked with you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us following the footsteps of Christ. May we end up at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And may we see the Savior dying for the sins of his people. And if that wasn't necessary, then why the cost? Why the terrible sacrifice? Well, it was necessary. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They were just emblematic of the one, in, one coming who would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins forever. I pray that you'll grant us faith today. Grant us your strength. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>